This is a very, very um, interesting topic, a hard one to talk about, actually, one that I think that's affected all of us in this, uh, this room today, and that is Islamophobia. Now, Islamophobia means something different to each and every one of us, um, and it's affected people who are not even Muslim, which is crazy. Um, so I just wanted to know, what does Islamophobia look like to you guys? What is Islamophobia to you guys personally? Uh, yeah, I can I can get us started. So uh, Islamophobia, I think one of the complicated things that you kind of alluded to is that a lot of folks that, you know, even if they're not Muslim, um, are affected by Islamophobia, whether that be through, you know, some extra legal violence, whether it be through uh, racist remarks, uh, microaggressions, things like that. So what we kind of see is that Islamophobia in a really weird, I don't know if weird's the right word, but in a, a strange way is actually something that's racialized. Uh, you know, there's there's kind of like a racial component to it, um, even though it's, uh, you know, based on religion. Um, but it's basically, there, there are certain markers that people associate with Islam and people respond to that, right? That's kind of dictated by Orientalism, discourse, how people... Uh, you know, the, the stereotypes in society, right? So you see someone who's brown, someone with a beard, someone with a hijab, uh, or just a head covering in general, and people automatically assume, you know, Muslim. Um, some folks might be a little bit more educated, might not jump to that assumption. But when we're talking about Islamophobia, we're really talking about something that's societal and structural. The interpersonal matters, but we also have to look at kind of the bigger picture. So uh, that's that's kind of how I would think about Islamophobia just uh, to get us started. Islamophobia to me is ignorance, plain and simple. People don't know the difference between Arab and Muslim. A lot of Arabs actually are not Muslim. Yeah, like they don't. It does not go hand in hand. And it's just yeah. ignorant. Yeah, There's a lot of Palestinian Christians. There's a lot of uh people that look white blonde hair blue eyes that are muslim mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's like they they can't even differentiate who they're attacking first before they can even consider islamophobia it's crazy i was just gonna say the first few waves of immigration to the united states of uh folks from you know predominantly muslim countries were christians so you know and they actually i believe they're still a majority surprisingly enough of, of arabs in the united states so you know kind of speaking to that ignorance portion right like mm -hmm. there's an assumption like you were saying uh Zina, arab equals muslim and you know we have a lot of arab christians uh, as well as a lot of you know different folks from the middle east that are also christian you have armenians who come from a christian tradition both catholic and protestant actually you have coptic christians from egypt you have you know chaldeans uh assyrians most of these folks are ethno-sectarian minorities so um, there's a racial element to how they identify their identities, but also religious identity that's very tied to their cultural upbringing. But all of them are affected by Islamophobia to different extents. Do you guys have a memory of witnessing Islamophobia? Maybe your earliest memory of witnessing Islamophobia? Could you maybe talk about that? Um, I think one thing for me is that there is a marked difference. So when I used to take public transportation, both in San Diego and in Michigan, uh, I always noticed there was a marked difference when I would grow out my beard or when I was wearing like a kufiya or something that visibly marked me as Arab or Muslim. I noticed that 
you know, I would get some looks, but especially people wouldn't sit next to me unless, you know, there's, there's no seats in the bus or something like that. But uh, it was, it was, it's a very That's nice though. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's like, uh, you know, if I, if I shave my beard, people don't mind. And then if, if I, you know, grow it out, whatever people take a double look. Right. So I think that's, that kind of falls into like the microaggression portion of it. Uh, not necessarily outright violence, but, you know, it still is a manifestation of kind of how ingrained and subconscious, you know, Islamophobia could be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's some experiences I had with Islamophobia is I'm Palestinian, I'm Muslim, but I don't generally look like a typical Arab girl. I have more lighter features. I get a lot of like, mm-hmm. I must be Hispanic or white, whatever the case may be. So I had moved up north for a point in my life out in like the tip of the thumb, Michigan. People would think I was white, but once they would hear my name, like especially my last name, like Amana Ali, they they get so thrown off. Their demeanor changes, the way they look at me, the way they act towards me is crazy. Like they won't be as helpful or they would just seriously just be like, oh, and walk away. Like, oh, we're done with the conversation now. Yeah, like very standoffish towards any type of Arab Muslim vibes that were coming off of me, you know? That was really interesting. I where you said that you um, felt you were getting discriminated against when you grew out your beard or look more Muslim. I'm saying that in quotes. When I used to not wear my scarf, I got treated so much differently than when I put it on. For example, when I used to walk, what's like the most mundane thing? I used to walk into Walmart, right? And I would just like have a normal day. It was Walmart in San Luis, Missouri. Like, who cares? And then I put my scarf on and it was all of a sudden 180 difference. Mm-hmm. I felt like an alien. I felt everyone's eyes on me. And I remember this memory so vividly. Like, I even see their faces still. And it's just like white Americans just looking at me. And I'm a young girl. I'm like in middle school. And I have my scarf on just walking in, trying to get my business done. And it was as though I am Bigfoot, you know, That's it was, crazy. it's crazy. So that, I think that was my earliest memory with, with Islamophobia. And it came with my um, very visible attributes of being Muslim, like having my scarf on or for Yahya, it was having his beard. Whereas yeah. Amana, it was uh, quite the opposite. Like you look white when oh. you mentioned your name, they're like, oh, very standoffish. Um, and I'm sure we can go on forever with um, our stories and experiences. But I wanted to continue with something that's very similar to this topic, which is the misconceptions of Islamophobia. What, what we really have to understand about Islamophobia, and I think this is the big mis- misconception, is it's not a public relations issue. It's a political issue. Um, it's something that is deliberately constructed um, in order to otherize Muslims, to um, essentially dehumanize us in order to justify things like war, imperialism, and, uh, you know, internal discrimination within within the United States. And so I, I think the, the other big thing that we also have to understand is Muslims as a group in the United States are some of the most vocal and most critical communities against U.S. foreign policy and the status quo around foreign policy in the United States. Um, that's something that, of course, is threatening to power, right? It's something that, again, it's it's against the status quo, right? So Islamophobia is also kind of manufactured to limit the, the power of the Muslim community, right? If, if people feel like, okay, we have to put a good image, we can't make waves, we can't seem too scary, 
we can't seem to, you know, quote unquote radical, whether that be in uh, our behavior and our politics, that affects our, our ability to mobilize politically and, and have an impact on laws and foreign policy and things that affect our communities, both here and back home, right? Mm-hmm. So. What you were saying about how they justify starting war in our countries with Islamophobia, um, that reminds me of 9-11, how they really took that and just ran with it. And they went to uh, Iraq and they went to wherever and they really used 9-11 to justify their actions and to tear our countries apart, literally to dust. Yeah, um, 9-11 is a really interesting uh, kind of story for me because I was actually uh, raised in a uh, private Muslim school when I was growing up for elementary school, first through sixth grade. I was in about fourth grade when uh, 9-11 happened and, you know, we didn't have like the whole school was about 100 people. We didn't have like a television that was broadcasting things going on live. And essentially, you know, since this was me as a as a young uh, elementary school student, like I was I was kind of growing up in a Muslim Mara bubble. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really understand the implications of 9-11 or even really hear about the news until I went to middle school in a public school. And people started talking about like 9-11, how uh, how devastating it was and, and whatnot. And definitely 100 percent. But I also grew up watching Al Jazeera. You know, it was always just downstairs on the TV. And I would see just the devastation of the U.S. military, the Israeli uh, occupation forces decimating, you know, carpet bombing uh, our people, you know, and at, at a certain point, and it's really unfortunate, but I got pretty desensitized to it. So when 9-11 happened, you know, I was like, OK, this is kind of just another bombing. I, I didn't really realize the how how much weight um, it holds because, you know, we don't we don't get that same weight when the same kind of, you know, when we have 9-11s happening all the time, you know, quote unquote, 9-11s happening all the time inside our region. Right. So that, that was a really, <laughs> I think, uh, atypical story for me is just I didn't really hear about 9-11 until a few years after pretty much. And it didn't really, really hit me the same way just because of, you know, my upbringing and kind of the media I saw. Yeah, I was I was far too young to know what was before 9-11 and uh, what came after 9-11, like what 9-11 did to our country and to us as Muslims. Um, Amana, do you have any recollection of how life was before 9-11 and how it shifted after? Um. 9-11 was scary. I remember we were seriously like fearing for our lives. Some of us, mm-hmm. our family members, a lot of girls took their scarves off. People were scared to go to school the next day. Like we were seriously contemplating that me and my parents, our whole family. It was very scary. We were just scared to go anywhere at all. Yeah. Uh, a few things I wanted to add, some interesting things around 9-11 as far as like institutionalized Islamophobia after 9-11, yeah. a, a lot of courts in response to kind of that extra legal violence against Muslims and quote unquote Muslim looking people um, considered acts of violence and murders as quote unquote crimes of passion, uh, as opposed to like premeditated oh, wow. murder, first degree murder. And that's important because that carries a much lighter sentence. There was kind of some justification of the acts of violence. Yeah. It's very sad. And like with those three Muslims that died, uh, remember there were two dentists and they're, you know, I don't know if you guys remember the story. I don't remember exactly. I know one of their names was Razan, I think. And it, it's just crazy how the effects of 9-11 still carried out into the years following. I was going to say, there's also the story of the, uh, I believe they, they were calling it the Ground, Ground Zero Mosque or the, the masjid that was, you know, years, years after um, being built 
not too far, I guess, from the site where it was happening and just the huge community um, anger uh, at the the idea of Muslims establishing a religious institution, quote unquote, so close to where 9-11 happens after years that people are still associating 9-11 with Muslims as offensive that Muslims would even consider having a religious institution, even though we know that they had nothing to do with 9-11, right? Uh, no. It wasn't like a Islamic motivated attack or anything like that, right? No. And um, Amanda, what you were saying about um... 9-11 really changed like the future of Muslims in this country um, and how you were you, you and your family were scared to go outside and go to school and whatnot um, that I relate a lot to that because um, during grade school and high school and uh, middle school I remember skipping 9-11 every year the day September 11th I wouldn't go to school neither would any of my siblings and I thought it was a normal thing because I was a one-year-old during 9-11 you know I only know life after 9-11 and what I know is we skipped school and we had to be very patriotic during that time too we have to we have to go above and beyond uh just to ensure that hey we're the good ones you know and <laughs> I thought 9-11 was the the reason we have Islamophobia today um 9-11 was not the pivot point and what brought Islamophobia to our in America or um, to the world? It was um, actually the inauguration of Israel in 1948 that really started Islamophobia and how we began to be portrayed in the media. So before we were exotic and magical and whatnot, and there were movies like uh, The Sheikh in 1921 and Fatima in 1897 and The Thief of Baghdad in 1924 that portrayed us as magical and exotic and whatnot. After the, the inauguration of Israel um, in 1948 is when we started to come out as bombers and terrorists and whatnot. So that I think that was the pivot point where everything changed, not 9-11, but they used 9-11 as the excuse to... Uh, justify their actions against us today and it's crazy um, and that really leads me into my, our next topic which is Zionism so I know Yahya has a lot of information about this because you uh, started a chapter with PYM Palestinian Youth Movement um, so if you want to tell us the correlation between Zionism and Islamophobia yeah definitely so um, Zionism like you mentioned uh, actually Islamophobia has roots even before 1948 and just kind of how, uh, you know, Arabs were portrayed as uh, angry and, you know, violent, you know, kind of these orientalist stereotypes. But in 1948, you really saw the, the figure of the uh, terrorist Muslim or terrorist Arab, really, and terrorist Palestinian um, emerging, right? The 1947-1948 was the year that uh, Israel, quote unquote, was, was officially founded. And then, you know, we also saw a marked increase in kind of those stereotypes and caricatures and uh, media representations of Arabs as violent and um, as, as, you know, terrorists and things like that in 1967, again, um, when, you know, there was the Six-Day War and Israel took even more land. Um, so really, we see that Zionism and Islamophobia are very heavily connected because the one of the strongest and earliest political motivations for Islamophobia was um, the Zionist colonial project. Um, justifying it, making it seem like the displacement of, of Palestinians was something justified, you know, they're violent, we can occupy them, we can, you know, put walls around them, because, you know, they're 
they're seen as less than human and they're seen as violent and they're seen as constantly a threat. We have to keep watching them. We have to keep surveilling them, right? We actually also see a marked increase in Islamophobia um, or kind of one of the big shifts where Islam comes into the picture. Of course, Islam was in the picture before because there is, again, the assumption that Arab equals Muslim, even though there's a lot, a lot, a lot of Palestinian Christians. But with the Iranian revolution, that was kind of seen as one of the moments where political Islam was on the rise. And that was something that also shifted the narrative a little bit, but um, added like a uh, Muslim characteristic to some of these, these caricatures and, and stereotypes, uh, or heightened, heightened that I should say, because now you see the United States and the West fearing Islam as a political force, right? So definitely Zionism. Um, and, and, you know, the, the other big, the other big reason that Zionism is deeply tied to Islamophobia is that um, Israel, along with, you know, Saudi Arabia and some other regional allies, Turkey and whatnot, but a big one is, is Israel is one of the strongest regional allies to the United States. Definitely kind of the, the military arm um, that helps Western power keep a grasp over the Middle East, right? And constantly have a presence, right? And of course, we see this with billions of dollars of military aid going to Israel from the United States. So, you know, in order to maintain geopolitical power inside the region, Zionism has to be strengthened by the United States. And in order for Zionism to be justified in its military aggression and its occupation and all the violence that it does, you have to dehumanize Muslims and you have to conflate Palestinians with, with Islam. You know, mm -hmm. even though there's not, not only just Christian um, Palestinians, but you also have Jewish Palestinians that were there way before 1948. You have uh, Armenian Christian um, Palestinians and even Assyrian Christian Palestinians. So really just, and, and Druze is another one as well. So you really see a big uh, ethnic diversity as well as religious diversity inside the region. And all of that's just kind of conflated into a menacing, threatening, violent, extremist, Islamic threat that needs mm -hmm. to be surveilled and needs to be contained and needs to be watched and needs to be disciplined, right? Mm -hmm. Everything you just said there, I just, I need that tattooed on my forehead every single time, <laughs> every word, every word you said. I agree 110% with everything Yahya said. To me, it just comes down to them trying to control the world and the, the different cultures and races that come out of it. Because personally, when I visited Palestine, and I don't mean to offend anyone or come off any way by saying something like this, I felt like a Black person in America. I literally, that's what I felt like. I was so degraded and put down, treated like an animal. Even though I was from America, they did not care. Because I was Palestinian, that meant I was literally an animal. It's, it's disgusting the way they treat the people over there. And it, it, it really reminds me of what goes on here in America with the Black communities. It's, it's sad. A lot of things you can compare with what's going on there and here. And like Yahya said, how the, the militaries are involving themselves with each other. They're using a lot of the tactics that they use back and forth on the different cultures and races in their different countries. Yeah, I was just going to say, speaking about blackness in Palestine, you know, you also have Afro-Palestinians who face uh, kind of the intersections of that kind of violence. And, you know, even their, their Palestinian-ness is uh, invalidated and things like that. But something that we have to understand, too, is that the Middle East is one of the most racially diverse regions inside the world. It's literally at the crux of Asia, Africa and Europe. Right. Um, so you have. Uh, Afro-Palestinians that are heavily discriminated against. And you also have 
Ethiopian Jews who, um, you know, are, are African migrants, but also, you know, there is a history of, of kidnapping during the, uh, the 1948 project of, of colonizing Palestine in order to increase the, the numeric uh, majority of, of Jewish folks within the region in order to, you know, again, justify the claim to land. Um, and recently, Israel finally confessed to what we already knew for a long time, but there was, you know, forced uh, sterilization, or what's the word? Not sterilization. You know, when they, when they uh, inject you so that you uh, are, are no longer fertile. Do you all remember that? That is, that is sterilization. Or sterilization. Um, anyway, so, so the, Israel finally admitted to that practice um, on Ethiopian uh, Jewish folks. So, you know, we also see heavy, heavy anti-Blackness, um, both against Afro-Palestinians as well as um, Black folks within, you know, 1948 historical Palestine by the, the Zionist entity. And you see it till, till today. I went and visited Palestine. I mean, granted, it was a little while ago, like six years ago, but still, I saw that a lot, a lot of Ethiopians there, and they were being treated like just as bad. What I'm getting from this is like, um, with Islamophobia comes a bunch of different levels of who gets treated the worst. So we're, we talked about the Afro-Palestinians or the Black community who are Muslim, not only do they get hate crime because they're maybe Muslim or from a Muslim country, but because they are also Black. So that leads me to think who else is hated against because of their physical appearance and is Islamophobia gendered? Is Islamophobia gendered? Like, does one gender get um, hate crime more than the other? Does one uh, maybe get away with being Muslim rather than the other? I could see in the only way, and I don't, I don't mean to be sexist, where Muslim women also get oppressed by Muslim men. Mm, okay. So not only are they being oppressed by society, they're also being oppressed by even the men within their own religion and culture, even their own family. Yeah, and I think uh, another really important thing to highlight is uh, that Muslim women have some of the highest rates of uh, of um, you know being survivors and and victims of sexual assault, um, and you know that does have a long history of Islamophobia. It has a long history again, even before 1948, of the exoticization of of uh, Muslim and Arab women and Middle Eastern women. Um, of course, you know you have this narrative of you know what is behind the veil, the exotic kind of desirable but unreachable, you know, beauty that the Westerner wants to. To obtain, you have the idea of the the harem that is kind of this portrayed as this you know exclusively female space that the the Westerner wants to be able to access, and you know it's kind of again seen as exotic and and uh, you know highly sexualized, right? So you do have kind of these unique sexual and gendered expressions of Islamophobia that affect Muslim women definitely in a unique way. And like Amana was saying, like intersectionality, right? Muslim women and Arab women and Middle Eastern women and folks that are racialized as Muslim have to deal with sexism, have to deal with racism, have to deal with Islamophobia and have to deal with the unique ways that they intersect too. Oh yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> I, uh, the stories I have of um, the way I'm discriminated against because of my hijab, it's insane especially leaving my comfort zone, which is the Dearborn area. It's so just 
annoying to leave and have to become the minority again when in Dearborn and like the Dearborn Heights area I am the majority I really forgot that oh not everyone is a hijabi or not everyone is from the Middle East and then I came out here I'm in Ann Arbor right now and I'm like oh wait a minute I'm getting looked at again and I'm getting treated differently again oh um, but I really think that Muslim women are really the most just the strongest people out there because despite all the backlash they get, they still believe that Dino Dunya, you know, and we're going to wear the scarf and we're going to follow our hearts, even with the amount of hate and discrimination we get in this lifetime. Um, surprises me when you say you get stared at in Ann Arbor. See, I'm shocked because I can go walk around Ann Arbor and nobody would ever know I'm a Muslim and I don't get stared at that way. It's It just totally blows my mind how differently I get treated. I wonder like what difference if I were wearing a hat or a hoodie, but yet still covering my hair and still covering uh, the shape of my body, what difference would that make? Yeah. Another thing is too, is I don't think people who live in Dearborn realize how lucky and privileged they are to grow up in such a heavily populated Muslim Arab community. Mm-hmm. I travel a lot. I have a lot of family all over the country. And the way life is outside of Dearborn is different. It's mm-hmm. very different. I really don't think a lot of people understand how life is within Dearborn, Dearborn Heights community and how it is outside everywhere else, even in like as close as Troy, you know? Mm-hmm. As close as Ann Arbor. Yeah. It's life is completely different outside of Dearborn, Dearborn Heights. I wonder, like, how do you feel like growing up some of your childhood in Missouri? Like the differences there. Although Ann Arbor is liberal, it is much the same as Missouri, where I lived in a a predominantly Republican white town. Um, I will get uh, uh, treated differently wherever I go if it's not in Dearborn or a Muslim country, period. Um, So I would say they're pretty much the same experiences. Um, even the other day, like my family went to Target and we were speaking Arabic and then an old white couple walked past us and was like, in America, we speak English. Okay. <laughs> and I wish that there was a difference between the Ann Arbor city and Missouri. Uh, it is America. The only place I feel safe is Dearborn. And it's so, it's so like uh, suffocating because I want to explore the world, but um, some things are limited to me because of um, the Islamophobia. Yeah. 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 Dearborn is like super sheltered in a good, good ways and bad. I also want to mention as, as just another perspective too, uh, you also have a unique dehumanization of Arab and Muslim men when it comes to uh, violence abroad. So oftentimes when you see things like bombings or uh, things like military aggression, you know, women and children, and this is, this is beyond just the Middle East, but, you know, again, you have this scary terrorist figure. Oftentimes it's, it's seen as male, but you also do have this figure that of, of you know, the Muslim woman who is able to, to hide and, and cover bombs, essentially, right? That's also a, uh, that's also a image that's, that's conjured up. Uh, but, you know, usually that's that's a very gendered uh, male kind of image, the, the figure of the terrorist. And so it's very easy for um, statistics to further dehumanize and just aggregate uh, violence against men. And actually, the again, going back to Zionism, the Israeli military, for that reason, targets men a lot of times in military aggression because they know that they're seen as less human and more killable, you know. Okay. 
So that's just another counter, or not a counterpoint, but just to, yeah. you know, expand the conversation a bit. Yeah, um, what you said re reminds me of uh, surveillance of the Muslim community uh, when it comes to a man growing his beard out. Um, could you talk a little about surveillance in the in our communities, like um, the mosque, or let's say Dearborn as a whole, really, our Muslim communities, um, and what surveillance is and how it affects us? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, because, uh, you know, something I think about is the, the Countering Violent Extremism Program, which is, um, you know, has been rebranded a few times, but, you know, it's, it's a uh, program by the Department of Homeland Security that essentially seeks to build community partnerships, quote unquote, with, you know, masajid, religious institutions, but also social service agencies, therapists, things like that to help kind of identify potential terrorist threats before they happen, right? And they have a whole criteria, which is, is based in academic literature, which is racist um, when, it, when it comes to this, but, you know, of markers that determine likelihood of becoming a terrorist and things like physical markers, things like growing out your beard or um, wearing a hijab or outward expressions of, of religiosity are considered a marker of potential threat to become uh, someone who commits acts of terror. Um, and even things like, you know, your involvement with religious institutions, the more religious you are, the more of a threat that, that you're seeing, right? And of course, all of these things are very pervasive ways that surveillance happens, right? Like, you know, imagine going to a social service agency and, you know, they're reporting like, oh, this person is using social services to the Department of Homeland Security, you know? And actually, uh, one of the nefarious things about the Countering Violent Extremism Program and its uh, rebranded offshoots is that uh, it seeks to kind of make these uh, this this reporting even amongst teachers and education and whatnot, but it seeks to make this reporting mandatory. Um, so you know, if if you see these markers, you're you're legally obliged, depending on you know if you're a social service um, provider or if you're a therapist or if you're an educator at a public institution, you're legally obliged to report certain behaviors and and certain outward markers and things like that, right? So surveillance is very pervasive. This again goes back to the conversation about like some of the misconceptions about Islamophobia. A lot of times Muslim institutions will be like, oh, we have nothing to hide. We should welcome um, surveillance because, you know, they can see how good Islam is and, you know, what kind of role models we are to society and whatnot. And what, what that misses is that, again, you know, Islamophobia is about neutralization of um, the political power of Muslim communities, right? Again, this kind of goes back into the idea of community partnerships. Actually, in the 1960s, we see the FBI using the same terms of community partnerships and building relationships and whatnot as a tactic of infiltration and neutralization. And that's the, the term that was used inside the FBI documents that were declassified, you know, neutralizing political power. You see, you know, folks going into these communities, identifying folks that are, are vulnerable and, you know, trying to recruit them as, uh, as agents, right? You know, you have this this carrot and stick method. Either either you join us and you get you know a big reward, a nice salary, prestige, whatever, and all you have to do is report on things in the community, or you know, we'll deport you and we'll deport your family, right? Um, and that's that's kind of an insight. You know, the vulnerability and immigration status and things like that. That's an insight that you can only really get by surveilling the community and buying by being inside the community, right? So when we welcome. Um, the surveillance into our community with open arms, we're really making our, our community members vulnerable in a lot of different ways.
it's so important for us to know that there's surveillance and I had no idea what surveillance was, let's say a month prior to our campaign with For the Banath about surveillance. It is so important that our community knows that there's so much harm in surveillance and a lot of people have been harmed. If we become aware, maybe we can not fall victim to their tactics. Um, so it's really, really important that we are aware that this is going on and the harm behind it. So I'm really glad you brought up um, those important facts about surveillance. Um, Amana, uh, you haven't been with Father Benatz for a minute. Tell me about your, what you thought maybe surveillance was before Father Benatz continued doing this campaign and what you think surveillance is now. I personally did not even think surveillance was a thing. It's great that we have organizations or spread the word and come out and actually teach people and educate people about what is really going on within the community because I didn't have no idea. I'm ignorant. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I did come from uh, Iraq not too long ago, so I didn't understand the amount of surveillance that's going on. I know I would hear like after 9-11, a few converts in the mosque came and they um, are very happy to learn about Islam and then they become closer to maybe some younger kids and then they got the younger kids and then they forced them to confess to something that they had nothing to do with and they're in jail for 35 years 40 years or forever wow. um, as terrorists um, when really they're just um, young vulnerable kids that were at the mosque um so yeah there are ho like horrific stories behind surveillance and um so it's really 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 important that we important that we get the word out about surveillance and we educate ourselves um and we have people like yahya on our podcast to teach us more with that i just want to wrap this podcast episode up and i want to thank you guys so 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 much for taking the time out um and whether you're extremely educated on the topic of surveillance or islamophobia or want to learn you're welcome here i know nothing about anything and i'm here um and i feel like yahya knows everything about everything <laughs> and he's also here you uh, wherever you are on the scale uh you're welcome and i hope that you learned a lot from this podcast and if yahya or aman have anything they want to say before we close off please feel free yeah, I mean, I can talk for hours about this. You know, it's, it's my pleasure. It's a huge honor to be here. You know, thank you for inviting me. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, thank you, Nina, for inviting me. Yeah, it was a pleasure meeting you. Yeah, I you had too. a lot of fun. It was a great discussion. I apologize if I got a little too aggressive. Oh, no, give it to me, girl. I want all the action. It really does. It's very heartbreaking. Yeah, it's definitely a hard topic to talk about. Um, but we got through it. One last thing. One of the most impactful things you can do is joining an organization and um, just politically participating in your community. So join for the Banad, join for the Palestinian youth movement, um, get involved in some way. You know, I mean, community power building is really important. And it's mm -hmm. one of the things that historically has made, you know, a huge difference in policy and in political power and, you know, in challenging systemic racism, systemic Islamophobia and whatnot. So Absolutely. Get organized. Yes. And once upon a time, we all knew nothing about anything. I know Yahya started getting um, political and, org and started organizing during their freshman year of college, correct? And Amana just started with us. So you can get involved whenever. <laughs> okay, guys, I'm going to end week, this guys. episode and I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye. Bye.